listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together making disciples. Check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So today, uh, we will finalize our sermon series over deacons. Again, we have been focusing on the theme, Prepare to Build, based out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the, the building blocks of uh, that focus have been here. Biblical values, biblical training, biblical deacons. All of these things that we agree upon at the elder level and among the body are things that we need to rightly focus on um, in, the, in the months ahead. And so finalizing the sermon portion of this on biblical deacons. The first, we, this is the third sermon of deacons and also the final one. Next week we'll get back into the Gospel of John. Pastor Tony will kick us off in that way. And so in regards to biblical deacons, we started out out of Acts chapter 6, kind of getting the blueprint of what deacons began to be in the New Testament church. Acts chapter 6 does not speak of deacons explicitly, nor of elders, but it does become really the framework for how that begins to unfold. Last week, we got the first part of 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10, talking about the qualification of deacons. And so today, we will conclude those qualifications in verses 11 through 13. One thing we did provide last week, and I want to draw your attention to, and maybe we can take, I don't know if we can get somebody to take them out of the box, but in the box back there on that table is a bunch of books that we purchased called Deacons by Matt Smethurst. I was corrected this week on how to pronounce the name. Matt Smethurst. And this, this book is a valuable resource, and we bought plenty for everybody to have at least one for the household. So if you would, make sure and grab one uh, before you leave today because this is going to be uh, important for you to be thinking and praying through what deacons are, what deacons are not, and who can and cannot be a deacon. That said, today is going to be, I, I had to focus really hard on trying to make sure I'm very clear today, very focused So I know all my sermons can be lengthy. Today is going to be another lengthy one, and unapologetically. But that's also because I need us to really focus on what is going on. And I want you to rightly hear what I'm saying, because sometimes people take snapshots of what I'm saying, and they mishear what I'm saying. So I want you to, I want to do what I can communication-wise to convey to you clearly what Scripture is saying, what our conviction is of what Scripture is saying, and what Scripture is not saying. So, with all the gender issues going on in our nation, and it's no new thing. I mean, it's been going on for quite a while, and all the gender confusion. I also want to preface our time by saying that this sermon, today's sermon, is not a, a reaction to our culture. It's not in response to our culture. In fact, it really has nothing to do with our culture at all. It can sometimes be misunderstood that maybe the pastor's preaching this because he's reacting to something that's going on. No, that is not what we're doing at all. Rather, we are dealing with the text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and what is going on. And it so happens to deal with and ask the question, can women be deacons? The tension sets in. Can women be deacons? And so we're going to really work through that today. And we have to focus on it because verse 11 uh, forces, forces us to in some ways. And so and another reason that this is not some sort of cultural reaction is that this is an ancient matter. This isn't just a current of the time sort of matter. But this is also an ancient matter, and here's what I mean. What we're talking about today is going to be for the office of deacon and the role of deacon, and not so much a theology of the role of men and women. But it does cross over. If we have a Venn diagram, there is a lot of crossover there, right? But when we look at Scripture, we see that man and woman were created. God created 
equal image bearing. No one was more of an image bearer than the other. They were equal, equally responsible to steward the things of the earth, equally invited into God's presence to enjoy Him, live with Him. That is the original created order of man and woman. I am giving the most simplified, condensed version of this. But then there was a problem. Sin entered into the garden when Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of evil. And then there was a curse that came upon them both. And what we see is this curse of really domination, one over the other, this male domination over women. Your desire, God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And the curse of the woman ultimately, or that is the curse of the woman, and the curse of the man is by the sweat of your brow. You're going to be laboring and toiling to grow vegetation and food. And so forever from that point on, there becomes this relational tension between male and female, man and woman, husband and wife, unlike there was in the creation. There was not that sort of dominance prior to the fall. There was not that sort of curse of the ground and the sweat of the brow prior to the fall. There was more unity. But what it was needed then from that point on was redemption. Redemption. And this is what we begin to see in the New Testament. This is what the Gospel of Jesus does with both male and female. Jesus comes in and He gives life to both men and women. He associated with both men and women, even if culturally speaking, He was condemned for His actions to do so. One example being His relationship or His um, conversing with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. Jesus was not supposed to do that, but he did. Jesus would ultimately surround himself with 12 male apostles or disciples and numerous faithful women who followed him all the way unto death and even the resurrection. Paul gives us a glimpse in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, what the gospel does in this relationship between men and women. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying be blind to gender. He's not saying being blind to roles. But what he is saying is that God is redeeming that relationship that once fell in the garden. And so the dominion, the evil dominion, essentially the sinful dominion that came upon us, Christ redeems with the dominion of grace. And so it's a beautiful picture, just giving really, that is the 40,000 foot snapshot of gender within the Bible, kind of that bigger narrative. And so the beautiful picture of women and men in the New Testament under Christ and the, and the apostles is really a redeemed copy of what was in the garden prior to the fall, and really a cosmic foretaste of what the future holds as we re-enter the garden again where Christ is seated on His throne. And so a few things I want to, and this is a long introduction, right? A few things I want to make you guys aware of. First is this. The elders, we believe that Scripture teaches that women can be deacons. I'll just go ahead and set it out there. That said, and I'll make the case for it here in Scripture in a moment. That said, that doesn't mean that we just get to automatically change the doctrine you know, right underneath you and you don't get to have any say. There is, this is what we believe theologically to be true. And in order for that to become more of an official doctrine in our church, we need to undergo some formalities. And so June 5th, Correct me if I'm wrong, Austin. June 5th is our next family meeting, right? And it will be at that family meeting that we will talk about more, more clearly the theology behind uh, deacons and even the process of how we do this. And this will be a time where we begin to really explain what it looks like to move forward in including women as deacons. And that brings me to the third point. I want you to read your Bible. 
Read the book like we have provided for you in other books. Discuss this topic in your life groups. Discuss it with your husbands, with your wives, with your kids. Have interactions with one another. And I want to let you know, you have license, you have freedom to disagree with the elders. It's okay. There, there's kind of two boats to jump in, and both of them have holes in it. And so it's like, man, I can see the case for one, and I can also see the case for others. And so we want you to wrestle with this, to disagree with one another, to go to the scripture with this. We ask that you don't be divisive or rude to one another, but be honorable in that. But we want you guys to be interacting with this as we are. So that said, today, biblical deacons and what they must be. That's what we had last week in verses 8 through 10. And so we'll see that part two in verses 11 through 13. And so I'm going to talk about that in a few ways. I'm going to hit on here in verse 11, just the first couple words, really making the case for women deacons. That'll be the first thing I work at. The second thing will be in verses 11 and 12, this furthering qualifications for women and for men, whether they're single or married. And then 13, verse 13, the gain of a deacon. So the case for women deacons, the further qualifications for women and men, and then last, the gain of a deacon. But I do want to pray again before we get into this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is very simple and clear and plain to understand, and yet at the same time, it is so deep and complex, mysterious and rich. I pray that you speak clearly from your word, that you would use me as a vessel for preaching, teaching, exhorting this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears and our eyes to understand and to know the truth of your word. And that as we leave this place today, we have a richer understanding, not of gender roles, but of the gospel of Jesus. For that is the main hope and purpose of all of these positions within the church. It's for your glory, our good, we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. The case for women deacons. Pucker up, everybody. Just kidding. Man, joke's not landing. Okay, so their wives likewise. Deacons' wives likewise. So I just want to point out, the question is, can this be translated as their wives or as women? You'll notice in the ESV, English Standard Version translation that we have, it says their wives. If you have the NIV or the NASB, it just says women, right? And in your ESV, down in the footnotes, it may say or can be translated women. So there's some debate on how this can be translated. And because of that, there are a few interpretations that can be had regarding this text. First is just a position or uh, for men only deacons, men only deacons. You can read more about this in that book. It's very helpful. The first, the case for this position is that only the wives of deacons are to be considered as they'll be a help to their husband deacons. So in this case, in this verse, verse 11 is really just kind of a parenthetical note to whoever the deacon is. If they're married, their wife also needs to be qualified. There's no rhyme or reason or real understanding for that, except that maybe Paul's saying that the wife is going to help the husband out in these tangible needs. And so she also needs to exempt, you know, example Christ. The other case here is that when you go back to Acts chapter 6, there's no mention of women there. It's only seven men. I mentioned Phoebe from Romans uh, chapter 15 last week. Phoebe, it can be argued, is that she was not considered a deacon in term of an office, but just a servant. Even though the word is deacon in Greek, it just means the verb really as servant. Measure of authority is another debate. For some, 
the office of deacon exercises some realm of authority on behalf of the elders, and so therefore deacons must be men. The contextual arguments for male deacons only is that the Greek rendered here as wives in verse 11 is also rendered wives in verse 2 and verse 12. And so thus, the context, it would make sense to keep it in line with what Paul is talking about. The husband of one wife. Wives likewise, the husband of one wife. And so those are the more definitive debates and arguments for men-only deacons. Another understanding throughout history is that this is referring to another office called deaconess. Deaconess, really kind of the separate class of deacons alongside male deacons. Think of it kind of like nuns, right? You have women-only deacons and men-only deacons who are deaconesses, or women who would be deaconesses. But this office could also be that these are just women who help aid men in general in their counsel to women. That seems to be the kind of the lesser of the arguments. And then the third argument is, of course, for women as deacons. And here it becomes a little bit more exhaustive. The Greek word here for women, for wives, we would argue that it is women or could be rightly translated as women. You have nine total uses in the book of 1 Timothy. The word is genaikos, genaikos meaning woman or wife. Five of the first uses for sure are women. Three of them we see here are rendered as wives in the, um, in the ESV. But they could all arguably be um, rendered as women. Chapter 3, verse 2, where it talks about the qualification of an elder being a, the husband of one wife. And even as we'll get into today in verse 12, that a deacon likewise must be the husband of one wife. The rendering in the Greek is literally this. A one-woman man. Or a one-woman men, as it says in the plural in verse 12. And so what that does is that changes the game a little bit. So when translators are translating, they're trying to translate words in their given context. And so what you have here in verse 3, or verse 11 of chapter 3, is the noun for wife or woman, but it is absent of that possessive pronoun, the word there. Look in your Bible, verse 11. Their wives. That word there is an actual Greek word, but it is not here present in 1 Timothy 3.11. It is something that the translators had to bring in to help continue to meet the, the context of the position for wives. So that possessive pronoun doesn't even exist in the original context or in the original translation. And so what you have here is just a standalone noun, either wives or women. Wives or women. And so in our case here, we believe that in the greater context, Paul is talking from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 5 of women, and that is, that is his main argument in talking about the orderliness of the church. Another argument for this is wondering why deacons' wives are considered and not elders' wives. If you notice in the qualification of overseers, wives are not mentioned at all, but all of a sudden they are mentioned here with deacons. And arguments from silence come to be something like, because deacons handled so much practical needs in the church, they needed the help of their wives. And it seems logical and right, but how come that wouldn't be rendered in the case of elders? I don't think Paul, biblically speaking, would argue women do not help elders at all. You see that in the life of him as an apostle, he needed the help of women all the time. And if apostles represent elders, then we also see that elders needed the help of women. An elder who is married needs the help of his wife, though she is not an elder. So why would... Paul intentionally then overlook 
the wives of elders, but give attention to the wives of deacons. And so here's my position, that I don't think Paul was addressing wives of deacons at all. And I don't think he was addressing wives of elders at all. I think he was just simply addressing men and women. And in this case of deacons, he was addressing women deacons. And again, arguing that in the larger context of 1 Timothy. Another more strategic or structural argument is the the use of the word likewise. The use of the word likewise. Their wives likewise. We talked about it last week in verse 8, where deacons likewise. And you go back up to the overseers as well. Likewise. It renders a new break, a new category in the text. Deacons just like the elders. Women, just like deacons. Men, just like deacons. It's that rendering likewise argument. And so verses 8 through 9 is a parallel structure for women. It shows that clear break in the, in the passage. And so you see that likewise, verses 8 through 10, and likewise, verses 11 through 12. The next argument is in what you would see in verse 13 where it says, deacons who serve well. That word serve is again deacon, and it's a verb that describes the action of all nouns prior to it in verses 8 through 12. And all the nouns prior to that would be the noun deacon, the noun women, and the noun husbands. And so Paul is making this argument in verse 13 that those deacons who serve well, or those who serve well, those deacons, women, men who serve well, have a gain. A fifth argument is that deacons do not have authority. They do not have authority. And as such, women can therefore be qualified because women within this the Uh, oversight of the church are not to have the authority like an elder has an authority. Deacon is not a position of authority in the church, but is under the authority of the church. Thus, the argument for women. And something to note here as well. Male deacons do not have authority in the church. Only qualified male elders have authority, that authority in the church. Just remove gender from the equation for a moment. The position is not a position of authority like an elder. An elder has a requirement of being male, but being male does not automatically qualify you to be an elder. It's one of the requirements. And so deacons do not have authority. And the greater New Testament context reveals that women followed and were taught by Jesus. You see this in Luke 8, Matthew 27. They were sought after by the apostles in Acts 16.40. Phoebe, for example, was considered a servant, a patron, a fellow worker, alongside other women who risked their necks in a way that all the churches of the Gentiles should give them thanks In Romans 16, 1-5, they also opened their homes so that churches could gather, Colossians 4, 15, and they labored side by side with Paul in the gospel, Philippians 4, 2-3. There is this bigger picture of women serving in the church in a way that could be identified as a deacon, as a servant. And lastly, church history points us to this as well. And these I took from Smethurst's book, Deacons. He says, Pliny the Younger, governor of Bithynia, letter to the emperor Trajan in 111 to 113 AD. He says, accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. So immediately within the first century, women were understood and recognized as deacons within the church. And then from that point on, Clement of Alexandria, to Origen of Alexandria, to Olympus, 
to the apostolic constitutions, to John Chrysostom, to Jerome, to John Calvin, all of them recognizing throughout church history the role of women as deacons. And Charles Spurgeon from 1834 to 1892 says, Deaconesses, an office that most certainly was recognized in the apostolic churches. It would be a great mercy if God gave us the privilege of having many sons who all preached the gospel and many daughters who were all eminent in the church as teachers, deaconesses, missionaries, and the like. And one slightly comical resource that I didn't put on here, I listened to John MacArthur give, it must have been like a 30-second answer to if Phoebe was a deacon, and the answer was, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, John MacArthur's on with this, then I guess it's, it's all good. And so those are the reasons, and I understand some of that just kind of flew over, and this is kind of like a heavy um, kind of teaching moment here. I'll share this. I'll share my sermon notes on Church Center so you guys can comb back through it and see the argument. But these are the arguments for why we are seeing that women can be deacons within the church and in this passage. So having made that argument, that then forms the structure of how we are seeing the passage. So in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3, what we're seeing then is the qualification for deacons as a whole. There's no mention in 8 through 10 of men or women, but this is the qualification for deacons as a whole. And then in verses 11 through 12 are the furthering qualifications of men, of women and men, whether single or married. And then lastly, in verse 13, that gain of a deacon. So let's get into that in verse 11. The furthering qualifications for women and men. So deacons or women likewise must be. Again, that language, women likewise must be. We saw that last week in just the overall qualification for deacons. There is an inseparable link between deacons and elders. Elders are established and then the office of deacons. It's not the other way around. Elders need deacons. Elders need the church. All of us are servants we need the church to all be active members of the church and the body and to serve, to meet the needs of the body, to help bring unity, to champion unity so that the elders can be free to continue to minister in word and prayer and the equipping of the saints. So women, likewise, with that understand, likewise. And again, the structural parallels are unique, right? Overseers must be this certain way in verse th or chapter 3, verse 2. Deacons must be in verse 8. And now women must be. So there's no question about what women must be in these verses, or excuse me, in this verse in verse 11. And it seems redundant, these qualifications that are here, because it seems like Paul has already dealt with this. But I think they speak uniquely of the reflected perspective of women in the church. And I would argue even, this likewise would include the male deacons readdressed in verse 12. So this therefore, likewise structure, looks like men and women, you must look this way. And here's how women look. And here's how men are to look as deacons. And so how are women to be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things? Dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. That word dignified, we saw it last week as well. Right? There's very much a parallel in the character qualifications here that we see in verses 8 through 10. That idea of honor, respect, good character. And so I want to spend a little bit more time here out of these descriptions because I think how men and women function within the church is to be dignified, but it comes from different angles. Think of standing in front of multiple mirrors, in front of you, to the side of you, behind you. You have one light source, one reflection, 
but the mirrors come from different angles. Men and women are image bearers, meaning they are like mirrors reflecting the image of God to one another. And so they are just reflecting the same image, but from a different angle and the same with men. And I think that's something we can argue from Scripture. And so a woman's dignity in the church is in how she submits herself according to God's design. And again, I want to mention all people, including elders, are to be in submission. This isn't just a woman thing only. Elders cannot lead if they are not first in submission to Christ and his rule and his authority. And they also have a responsibility to submit to one another out of reverence and fear of Christ. There's nobody in the church who gets a free pass on not submitting in some way, shape, or form. If you were to jump over to chapter 2, verse 9, what you see, it says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a wor- woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That, that passage is always an uncomfortable passage for all of us in Western culture and society. That women were not permitted to teach a man and they were to learn quietly. But what Paul was not saying was that women were to become invincible and just be quiet and be flies on the wall and just kind of hide in the, in the shadows. The issue in the greater context of 1 Timothy is the issue around the order of worship concerning the gathering. The order of worship concerning the gathering. It's uncertain really what the issues were in Ephesus, especially in this letter to Timothy. But there was a struggle. And what we can gather from the context is, is that some women were either wrongly exercising authority over men, whether that be men abdicating responsibility, or women trying to assume a position of authority. Paul has to address this. Paul has to address the confusion. He had to correct the order of their gathering so that God's word, his great creative purposes, would not be wrongly placed or misunderstood. But that never meant, again, that the women were not invited to pray, were not invited to worship, were not invited to disciple, were not invited to obey the great commandment, the great commission. No, Paul would think otherwise. And you begin to see that as the book of First, or First Timothy unfolds, women play an important role in the church. But I think the Apostle Peter highlights this well. In First Peter 3, 1 through 6, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Abraham calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There's a beautiful picture of the role of women in the church. So whether the woman is a deacon as as a married woman or single, her submission to Christ, to the authority of the church, to her husband brings a unique honor upon the church body in ways that are unique to the God-given role of women. This is godly dignity exercised in the role of deacon, female deacons. 
So whether they're married or not, they all have the same calling, the same posture of humility, the same posture of submission within their responsibility as deacons. And as deacons, they get to display this sort of beauty before the whole church and the surrounding community. And so then, when women serve as deacons, there should be zero confusion of the gospel, zero confusion of godly order and submission as these women serve. And practically, think about this. Consider how this helps serve other women in the church. Make sure I didn't press a button. Consider how women deacons can help aid other women who are trying to find purpose in child-rearing and following the lead of their husbands. Can you imagine dudes trying to give counsel to women who are moms and are wives and dudes being like, okay, here's what it's like to be a wife. Are you kidding me? This isn't going to work. A woman deacon and the counsel of serving the body can show how child-rearing is sanctifying and good. That's the argument we see in, in 1 Timothy 2. That just by being a mom, it's sanctifying. That's what he's saying. And submitting to your husband is far loftier and majestic due to its relation to redemption. And think about that, especially in a culture such as this, where we are highly individualistic and women are told, don't bow down to your husband. Don't submit to men. Men are bad. Husbands are bad. You need to do what you need to do. You need to get you know, in higher power, higher authority. Women deacons help example to the body what it looks like to be a godly woman and what submission looks like and what it doesn't look like and how freeing and beautiful it actually is. So these women are also not to be slanderers. That word slanderer comes from the Greek diablo, was diablos, diablos, the devil, <laughs> Satan. And they are not to be slanderers, meaning they're not to have personal attacks upon one another. They are not to be gossips. They are not to tear people down. Right? They're also to be sober-minded. The same thing we saw for the qualifications for elders in verse 2. The same thing we saw in verses 8-10, through 10, that deacons are not to be addicted to much wine. They are to um, have a, a behavior that is sober, that is restrained, that is controlled, and controlled by godliness and good character. And what I believe we can deduce from Scripture here is that men and women leaders have the same character qualifications, right? The same character qualifications because, again, they are reflecting the same image, which is Christ. Just as they were designed to do, you and I were designed to do in creation. Male elders and female de deacons are no more or no less image bearers than the other. One does not have more points or more payment in heaven than the other. Right? Equal. Both have the same salary. Paid full in Christ. Both have the same insurance and benefits package redeemed through the blood of Christ. Both have the same inheritance awaiting them guaranteed as earnest payment through the Holy Spirit. So there's equality and equity within the roles of the of men and women and as image bearers in the role in excuse me in the bigger picture of salvation couldn't get my words out Paul is showing us that leadership is all reflecting that same savior that same gospel that same salvation but doing it from different roles and functions and these women are to be faithful in all things faithful in all things same instruction, same wording you see in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, as Paul is instructing bond servants in their relationship to their masters that they should not have pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The goal, again, of being faithful in all things is not about self. It's not about posturing yourself up, making yourself look good. It's about God. It's about the Savior. It's about the Gospel. And so these deacons are to be godly examples. 
Again, in Titus 2, 3-8 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. This isn't just for wives exclusively. This is for women in general. This is the character of women in our church. And so just as beautiful and lovely as the example of a female deacon, so it is equally rich when men live out their God-given role. And so then it says, let deacons, in verse 12, each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. The, the qualifications here again, the furthering qualifications are identical to what we see as elders, the husband of one wife. But the distinction between male elders and male deacons is the office of authority linked to that ability to teach. Deacons are not required to be able to teach. And so again, they're called to be like the elders, but serving in different capacity with godly character, godly living, and there to be the husband of one wife or literally a one woman man. And that's the same rendering again that you saw with the qualification of elders. And this is why even in most churches, you do not require that an elder or a pastor must be married in order for them to be an elder or a pastor. It is possible and does happen in churches where men who are not married are qualified elders, pastors, and deacons. And of course, if you want to argue that, then you also have to come up with a good argument why Paul himself was single and why he also championed singleness among the church. Rather, this is indicating whether you're single or married as a man, the focus towards relationship with women is to be godly. Godly. If, if the man is married, he is to remain faithful to his wife alone. 1 Peter 3 helps us, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Honor is a virtue, it's a value that we've even been talking about that is instilled in creation before the fall. Adam and Eve were to honor one another, to love one another, And of course, that was lost in the fall, but has been redeemed through the work of Christ. It is displayed not only in marriage, but it also spills over into the offices of both elder and deacons. It spills over into the relationships within the church. And to be clear, what I'm not saying is, because you're a man, that you also have authority over other women in the church, or Wives, that you have to submit to all the other men in the church. It's not at all what the text is saying. And looking at the larger context of 1 Timothy 5, these deacons, especially if they're male deacons, are to function in serving widows, caring for widows, talking about women. And so thus there needs to be male deacons who rightly understand godly relationships and behaviors between men and women in order for them to be considered trustworthy for such responsibilities. In other words, Paul doesn't want or need single men who are just on the hunt for a wife to go and use their position, their office as deacon, to go looking for, for ladies to date. Right? Having that sort of reputation is not good for the church. Rather, A very patient, humble, sober-minded man who understands what it means to be a one-woman man and understands what it means to behave and relate to other women in the church who are their sisters. And these men, if they are married, they are to manage their children and their households well. Meaning to influence, to cause them to follow a recommended course of action. It doesn't mean that men who are married and have children, they're the ones who save their wives and they're the ones who save their children in terms of 
salvation, eternal salvation. Now that is left to Christ alone. What we're talking about here is a leadership, an influence of saying, follow me to this way of living, this godly course of action. And remember, in the fall, in the curse, a man would be domineering in his authority and leadership, lording it over his wife as a result of the fall. But Christ comes in and the call is no longer to lord over your wife or be domineering, but to lead her, to honor her, to love her, to lay down your life for her. And so what we're looking for here is for men who are rightly leading, rightly honoring, living godly lives with their wives, with their children, and not abdicating responsibility, not punting it and giving it to someone else, but taking ownership of it. These men are to be godly examples, just like the women are to be godly examples. Let me read again from Titus 2, 6-8. through Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The beautiful picture of godly female and male deacons in the church is a redeemed picture of working together for the glory of God, just like it was in the garden prior to the fall. Just like the home is a microcosm of such picture, so is this mutual diaconal service of men and women in the church for the sake of God's glory. And so as we've seen, the office of deacon is not just primarily about women and men, but it's about who and what they represent in the greater gain. And that needs to be understood. It's about Christ. And so here's the gain of a deacon in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If they serve well, here is the gain. First, it is good standing for themselves. This could be good standing before the church. It could also be good standing before God. What this is not saying again is that you get more treasures in heaven because you did well. No, we all get the the same treasure in heaven. But what this is talking about is really this recognition for a job well done. Recognition for being faithful and serving the church so well. It's not the end. It's not the purpose. It's not the goal. But the benefit of serving so well. Serving the church so well can result in being greatly honored by her. And that is a godly virtue. That is a godly calling. The second thing a deacon gains is great confidence in the faith. There is nothing more sanctifying than being in a position, a noticeable position where your character, your competency... Every decision you make, every word you say is constantly being evaluated, scrutinized, criticized, looked, looked upon all the time. What did he say to his wife? What did she say to her husband? What they, how do they raise their kids? Like, where do they live? How much money do they make? All of these things are what come when you are put in that sort of position But it is not just a negative thing. It is a sanctifying thing. The constant evaluation is not to just be for purpose of tearing down. But it forces you. It forces you over and over again to run back to the Word of God. To run back to the cross of Christ. To run back to the empty tomb. To run back to the risen Savior to His helping Spirit, to seeking His forever help and promises. That's the goal. To constantly being reminded of who God says you are and what He has called you to do. 
It is easy, and any of us who've been in a position of leadership, even outside the church, understand that there's pressures that come your way. But at the end of the day, how are you going to respond to those pressures? And in the, sake, in, in the case of deacons, you are to run back to Christ. You are to follow His example in His sufferings, in His afflictions. This is why Paul could say of the women that they laid down their lives. They risked their necks for His sake. Their gain, their treasure, their hope was not in recognition that the Apostle Paul would give them a piece of stained glass in the church building, but their hope and was put in Christ alone, knowing that they had Him, the eternal treasure. And so this position is sanctifying. It is good. And understand... This is the same godly calling all of us have as Christians. All of us should live with this same sort of scrutiny, if you will. This same sort of pressure to live like Christ. And it just so happens it easily comes to those who are in a position either of authority or leadership. And is this not the entire purpose of deacons? To make much of Jesus? To gain Jesus? Not in the sense of earning Him in salvation, but gaining Him for what He has already done for us. The very One who won our hearts, who won our affections, has served us at the cost of His life so that we can gain Him and gain everything that He has. I want to read this. These concluding thoughts from Matt Smethurst. He says, no, we shouldn't elevate deacons to an executive board of pseudo-elders. It is an office of service, not oversight. But let us not reduce the role to savvy businessmen or skilled handymen either. Deacons are so much more. They are an influential cavalry of servants called by the king and deputized by his church to target and meet tangible needs, to protect and promote church unity, to enhance the ministry of the elders, and in so doing, to accelerate the mission of the church. Deacons do physical work with spiritual effect and invisible work with palpable effect. Their calling is noble, their service is needed, and their reward is near. May God use deacons at Redeemer in part to fulfill what Paul says in the following verse of chapter 3 and verse 14. That you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth.